we're in John chapter 13, the, the king whose scepter is a towel. Now, I want to share another insight that I picked up from John Ortberg's book, um, Soul Keeping. He says in his book that there are two enemies of the soul. The first one I think we're all going to get. This enemy is sin, right? We kind of get that, that a, a soul centered upon God cannot coexist with sin, unrepentant sin. But the other enemy, he says, is a little more pervasive. He calls this enemy the troublesome thought. And the troublesome thought begins with any normal concern that you might have. For example, say that you need to have a tough conversation with someone. I asked a couple of years ago the church, how many of you love conflict? And uh, the hands were sparse. Let's just say that. So you're thinking about this conversation, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker, and you start thinking, well, if they say this, then I'm going to say that. And the further on in the thought process you go, like the thoughts start kind of snowballing, and you're like, well, what if, what if they misinterpret my words, or, or what if I say something and it really hurts their feelings, or what if the conversation goes so badly that we just stop talking to one another altogether? Have you ever what if yourself into oblivion? The troublesome thought, Ortberg says, really takes our mind and our heart off of God. What ends up happening is I start trying to control the situation instead of trusting God for the situation. I'm so fixated on how my 401k is performing that I forget that God is my provider or I'm so worried that this person isn't going to accept me and approve of me, and I forget that it's God's approval that matters. You know what happens when we do this? We become temporary atheists. We either, one, start disempowering God and, and, and thinking that the problem's bigger than, than God is, or more so, we end up start living like, like God isn't involved in this dynamic. And here's the truth. We're all human. We all go here. That's why I like the Gospels, because in the Gospels, we get to see these very human, very flawed individuals called the disciples. Uh, I like to think of the disciples like this. They are Jesus's grand experiment. They are his pilot group for humanity. You see, in the disciples, as they are walking with Jesus, we get to see their doubts, their anxieties, their concerns. They're ordinary people. And in Jesus' experiment, the question we're asking is, well, what can Jesus do through ordinary individuals? And then you read the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, and you're like, he can turn the world upside down, which means he can use me too. Now, John 13, as we're transitioning into chapter 14, is very interesting because there is a troublesome thought that emerges and think about what's happening in this farewell discourse. Jesus is heading to the cross. Jesus is deeply concerned. De Jesus is in, in a space where 
he could probably use some people coming around him right now and reassuring him, but instead, he's got to talk to his disciples and attend to their needs, which makes him the consummate servant leader, doesn't it? I mean, remember what servanthood really is. It's disadvantaging myself to meet the needs, the desperate needs of another. And Jesus, even in his most difficult moment, most fearful moment, he's willing to turn his attention and reassure his disciples. Now, Peter begins the troublesome thought. In uh, verse 36, Peter looks at Jesus and he interrupts him and he says, Lord, where are you going? Now, rewind the tape a little bit. Jesus has just said to them that I will be with you only a little longer And then he gives them lesson number one in the farewell discourse. Here's a new commandment that I have for you. Love one another. Now, Peter, he only really hears the first part, and he doesn't really hear the second part. He, his anxiety is fixated on the fact that Jesus just said, I'm going away. You ever been in a conversation with someone and it's like, you didn't hear everything I just said. You, you just kind of got stuck on this one piece of the conversation. Peter is struck with the troublesome thought that Jesus is abandoning him. I mean, he had had his life all mapped out. I know that next week and the week after that and the year after that, And on into the rest of my life, I'm going to be following this Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going. You ever been hit with a fear like that, with God's faithfulness? You receive a diagnosis or you lose your job and you're just like, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to this? In Peter's case, it's the fear of abandonment. Maybe for him, he's had people that were supposed to be there, that that were supposed to be involved in his life and stay with him and keep doing life with him, and they went away. Is Jesus like that too? But Jesus says to Peter, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. Peter is this guy in the Gospels, kind of goes in one of two directions with his words. (laughs) Sometimes his words are priceless. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, you nailed it, bro. Like, you got it. Carve it in granite. Other times, though, Peter is opening his mouth just to switch feet, right? He just kind of says the completely dumbest thing that you can say in the moment. And this is an example of the latter, what he says next. Why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. Jesus says to Peter, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you even know me. I mean, he is just so out of touch right now with who he is and who Jesus is and what's going on in this dynamic. Peter sits there and he thinks to himself, Jesus is abandoning me when in reality, in just a few short hours, he and the other 10 disciples that are in that upper room they're going to be abandoning Jesus. 
He thinks that he's the big, courageous fisherman disciple. I'll die for you, Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, Peter. I'm about to go die for you. We all need to hear truth about ourselves at time. We need to be open to truth about ourselves. And the truth that Peter needed to hear right now in this moment is, Peter, you count too much on yourself, on your own abilities. You think that when the dynamic has gone from level one to level five in terms of trouble and problems, that you can just keep muscling your way through. The reality, Peter, is that you need to depend upon me. And that's where he takes us in the next chapter, verse 1. He looks at the disciples as Peter is concerned, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Have you ever gone to those verses before in a moment of despair? You ever, like, counted on that? Now, this is a, a passage for us that When our problems go from level one problems to level five problems, we have somewhere to go. (laughs) We have something anchoring us and tethering us to this world. You know, what is a level one problem? Well, that's me like driving down the road and I hit a nail and I'm like, ah, now I got to go and take care of this flat tire. But level five? That's a hospital room where you receive a diagnosis you don't know what to do with. That's that's losing perhaps a relationship in your life that you were always counting on, that you were always dependent upon, and now that presence is absent. You see, Scripture in John 14 is saying to us that the way to have an untroubled heart is to trust in the relationship that you have built with Jesus. You have to lean into that relationship. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you're in church this morning because you've been exploring what does it mean to have a relationship with God, well, you've got to build a relationship with Jesus to get the value out of this verse. Trust is everything. Trust is at the center of this passage Trust is built over time as we invest in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, Maybe you've heard the expression that past behavior is the best indicator or predictor of future behavior. So think over your life. If you've walked with God, you've seen God Be present in your life. Be involved in your life. Jesus is saying the same thing to his disciples right now. You're about to go into the dark night of the soul. Things are going to get really dire, and you're going to wonder, how is this all going to work out? I need you to do something. I need you to look back over the last couple of years where, where I have been with you, where I have been investing in your life. I need you to bank on the trust that I've been accruing over that time. See, trust is really about trusting yourself with Jesus. Can you trust him with yourself? Now, he gives the disciples and he extends to us certain reassurances so that we know that we can lean into him, that we can trust him. I want to begin with a first assurance. We see it here in verses 2 through 4. 
Jesus says this to his disciples. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. So if you look at the first assurance, the first assurance is you know that you have a home. Now let's just stick here with verse two. If you look at verse two, um, other translations would say, in my father's house, there are many rooms. Other translations, like for example, the King James Version would say something like, in my father's house, there are many mansions. Now, this analogy of home is important. It's really pointing or directing our horizons towards heaven. Do you ever think about heaven? Ever imagine it? What does heaven look like in your mind's eye? Now, I want to suggest this morning that this passage um, is getting us to think about heaven a little differently. If you're familiar with the old King James translation, you think to yourself, in my father's house, there are many mansions. And so what do you imagine when you think about heaven? You imagine your mansion. You ever thought about your mansion? Maybe when you think about heaven, you think about this big, sprawling property with a giant house on it, and, and the driveway is like a Hollywood drive where it just keeps going and going and going to the house, and it's lined with statues, perhaps, of you. I don't know. This is what I was imagining from my heavenly mansion. Mm. I was like, you know... We all going to look beautiful in heaven? Why not, right? Why not? Does it kind of trouble you or bother you that it doesn't say mansion, it says rooms? Well, it really shouldn't. Here's why. Jesus wants to get us thinking differently about heaven. He doesn't want to think us to be thinking about heaven so much as a location he wants us to think about it as a relational place. So home is far more about who you get to be with than where you get to live. And we all kind of get this instinctually, don't we? we? We know that if I was to lose my home today, as much as I love it and as much as I appreciate it, I would far rather have my home be centered on the people who occupy the home with me than the physical location itself. I would take them over this physical address, right? Now, in Middle Eastern thought, that's how they thought of home. And when you get this idea of rooms, they're thinking of adding rooms to a house because everybody lives together. I've been in the Middle East. I've seen this. You go into certain villages, you'll look at the houses, and you look at the roof line of the house, and you look at the roof line, and you're like, why does it always look like it's under construction? There's rebar sticking out, and, and, and no one's working on it. What's the deal? In fact, I asked the guide that one time. You know what he said? He says, the father always leaves the house in that state because he's thinking about the next generation, about when he gets to add another room 
to the house so that his son or son-in-law and daughter can be home with him because home is far more about who you get to live with than where you get to live. And Jesus is telling us in this text, God wants to dwell with you. God wants to provide you with a home where you get to live with God. And I'm going to prepare a way for you. And what does he mean by preparing a way? Some of us, when we hear that language, we're like, oh, okay, so it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. He's had on a construction hat, and he's just been up there just working away, building more and more rooms. In fact, we need rooms for perhaps a billion-plus people to be dwelling in heaven. That's why it's taken Jesus so long to return, right? I don't think that's the best interpretation. In fact, I think it all flows with what Jesus has been saying. Peter, you can't go with me where I'm about to go. I'm going to prepare a way for you. What is he doing to prepare a way for them? He's going to the cross. You know, Christianity at its core is what we would call a cruciform religion. That means that at the center of this faith, there is the cross. And if you remove the cross from the center of this faith, then you are taking this faith and making it into something entirely different. If you have no cross, then there's no room in a house with a father. If you have no cross, there's no relationship with God. If you take the cross away from Christianity, then you take Christianity away altogether. I like what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, the blazing hot center of Christian identity, passion, and hope is not that we are all doing things in Jesus' name. Of course, we should be doing things in Jesus' name. But the blazing hot center is what God has already done for us in Christ. So that is what he means when he says, I go to prepare a home for you. Now, The second assurance that we get from the passage is we know the way back home. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying, I've been talking to you. I've been investing my life in you. I've been telling you about the way back home. Now, Thomas is listening to all of this and and he comes in in verse 5. He says, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Now, I don't know how you guys feel about Thomas, but I actually kind of like this guy. I really do. Uh, There's this idea in leadership that the best leaders in leadership are actually the leaders who are not always the smartest guy in the room that think all the best thoughts in the room. No, the best leaders are the ones who are willing to ask the dumb questions, okay? Um, So here you have these 10 other disciples with Thomas, and they're all like nodding their head like, yep, yep, we believe Jesus. We're going with you. And Thomas is like, hold on a second. Pump the brakes. Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Where are you going? What is this way that you are talking about? 
This is great because it opens up the avenue for Jesus to explain it a little further. Again, Thomas, you're thinking about all of this stuff locationally, and I need to reorient your thinking to relational thinking. And then we come to the absolute claim of Christianity, verse 6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, that's an amazing statement. It is a crystal clear statement. It's an absolute statement in the scriptures. You can frame it like this. Ask yourself the question, how does a person get to heaven? Or how, does a person be, how is a person made right with God? How does a person receive salvation from God? And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have to notice the definite article here. Notice that Jesus is not saying, among all the ways of possibilities that that you could have to find your way to God and salvation in heaven, among all of those, I am one of them. I am a way, a truth, a life. No, he doesn't say that. He says, everything hinges on me. We're not talking about all the philosophies of the world and all the different avenues of religion out there. I am the only option. I am option A and there is no option B. It's all hinging on me. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus make the pathway to God exclusive through himself? Well, I want to kind of create a distinction with you this morning when you think about salvation and relationship with God and heaven and all of that. The distinction is, is that our problem with God is not a practical problem. In other words, it's not something that I can fix if I just do a few things. It's not a tactical problem. It's relational. And the Bible says that the reason that my relationship with God is out of sorts is because of my sin. My, my sin has destroyed my relationship with God. I can't fix that through tactical solutions. You know, the reason that religion just utterly fails us is because it tries to see, treat something that is relational like a practical, pragmatic, tactical problem. Well, if I just do a little more, if I'm just a little better, if I just pray five times a day, or if I just show up to the right religious ceremonies at the right time, well, then everything is going to be okay between me and God. Here's what's happening when you do that. You are turning relationship with God into a utilitarian exchange, meaning, God, I'll do my part, and you do yours. Now, imagine if I treat my marriage that way. The more I'm married, okay? I've been married for almost 18 years now. Some of you are like, wow, that's a really long time. And others of you are like, wow, you're still a pup. But the longer that I'm married, the more I'm realizing that marriage is like deeply relational, okay? I cannot treat marriage like a practical thing, a pragmatic thing. 
Okay, say the other night I, I said harsh words to my wife, and, and I know now that I'm in trouble. I mean, th- things are not good. There is tension in the room. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't want to have to go say I'm sorry to her because I don't really feel sorry right now. I don't want to have to make relational repair. So I'm going down to Trader Joe's, and I'm going to buy her a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And I'm just going to hand that to her so that everything is okay. You know what I do if I do that in my marriage? I have practical, tactical, pragmatized my way to the couch, okay? That's all I've done. I haven't fixed anything. How do you repair a broken relationship with God? How do you repair a relationship with God that is broken because of the sin that is entwined around my heart? Jesus is telling us in John chapter 14, verse 6, you can't do that. No, this problem was big enough that it required me to leave, to shed the, the, the robes of glory that I had in heaven and to come to earth and become a man and live a life that you couldn't live and then die a bloody death on a Roman cross. I could only do this for you. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And so in that way, you've got to think of him as being a relational link between you and God, and you take that link out of the picture, and there is no relationship that can be bridged now. It all centers on him. You see what he's showing us in the text this morning? He's saying to us, listen, you can be assured it's built on relational trust, and, and the assurances are that, that I go to prepare a home for you, and I am the way to that home. And he also wants to see that the reason he is the way to that home is because he shares a special, exclusive, unique relationship with the owner. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would know my, who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now let's kind of, you know, with this line, let's retrace the befuddlement of the disciples in the passage. Remember, Peter, he thinks Jesus is abandoning him and he thinks he's the big tough guy and he's going to go and die for Jesus. Got that all wrong. Thomas is sitting there like, You know, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. I just want to know the way. Now, it's Philip's turn to kind of get everything messed up in his mind. Now, Philip thinks that he's being super spiritual in his reply to Jesus. And in verse 8, you know, put on your biggest spiritual voice that you can possibly muster. Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. You know, Philip in this moment... He's thinking very narrowly about who God is. He's going back in his mind and he's thinking about Moses' interaction with God in Mount Sinai when 
when Moses was having an encounter with God and he said to God, God, show me your glory. And then the glory of the Lord passed by Moses. And if you remember anything about Moses' story, that forever altered his physical appearance. He shone forth the glory of God. And Philip, he thinks he's going to have a Moses moment too. And Jesus is like, Philip, you know enough right things about God right now to be dangerous. You think that, that you're heading towards a greater experience of, of God's glory and, 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 and connection with God. And, and the reality is, is the greater experience is standing right here in the room with you. I am the unveiled glory of God. I'm here with you. You know, the problem with Philip is he doesn't fully understand who God is right now. That's a problem. A.W. Tozer framed the problem like this. He says, whatever comes to your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I, I use this quote all the time because I am convinced that that is dramatically right. You know, God, our vision of God determines how we see everything, how I look at the state of the world right now, how I'm interacting with my next door neighbor, what I choose to cave into fear about, my anxieties, future, past, everything. How I think of God dramatically impacts that. Is God like this fearful judge that is just waiting for me to mess up so that he can strike me down? Or is he an impersonal force that, you know, he's somewhere out there, but I can never connect with him? Or is he this benevolent old man in the sky that's just kind of smiling about anything and everything I do? What's he like? And if I come to know the truth about him, then how does that inform the way I think and interact with the world? You see, Philip, his problem is he's stuck in this very kind of simple Jewish monotheistic thought. And Jesus is like, Philip, I've been with you all this time. I've been alluding to this. I've been pointing to this. What is going on? Why are you not getting it? Look at verses 9 through 11. Have I been with you all this time? And yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. Philip, you've got to expand your horizons. God is more than what you initially believed. Now, John 14 is an incredible passage because this is one of the key passages that helps us to understand more about God, the nature of God, who he is, what we say in theological terms, that God 
is a Trinitarian God. When you look in the Bible, you talk about that word Trinity, you can look from Genesis all the way through Revelation, you'll never see that word in the Bible. Trinity is a term that we use to define a concept or reality that we do see, though, all over the place in the Bible. That's who God is. Now, I'm like you, and I'm with you on this one. When you hear this idea of God being a Trinitarian God, you start scratching your head. You're like, how do I even interact with that? And so we try to build these like clunky little analogies to help us grasp who God is. So we're like, oh, you know, I like to think of God as, as the phases of water. He's solid and liquid and gas. He's like that. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not right. Or, you know, St. Patrick was trying to help people think about God, and he said, well, God's like a three-leaf clover. No, 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 no. Or, or here's another one that people throw out there. He's like an egg. He's got a shell and a white and a yolk. Mm-mm. No, my recommendation is throw the clunky analogies out the window and let's just let four words help us understand what this idea is. The first word is one. God is one. You look back in the book of Deuteronomy and it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And Jesus affirms the same thing. He expands our understanding of this oneness, but he says to us in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Meaning they're of the same stuff. They're the same essence. They are God. The second word is three. So God, according to our understanding of the Trinity, we believe in one God who is a community of three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, You can think of it like this. Say, after church, we all just decided to pile in a restaurant together. Now, I name-dropped the Daily Paper a couple of weeks ago. You guys already went and stormed them, so let's storm another place. Let's go to Crisp. I love that place. Great pizza. Say we're waiting for our table and we hear the hostess call God's table. She would say something like this, God, party of three, your table's ready. Well, how does that work? One, three. Well, the next word is diversity. Diversity. The community of three, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, yet eternally different persons. Now, one of the ways that people have erred on the idea of God in the past is they have developed this modal view of God, meaning that God is one person, and sometimes he's the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Wrongo. Wrongo. Three distinct persons. This is why Jesus could make a statement like this in John 14, 10. The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but as the distinct Son of God, Jesus takes his directions from the Father. Now, how does that work? Well, we get our fourth word, unity. 
they exist in perfect unity. The Son never feels jealous or diminished or in disharmony with the Father. The Trinity is always perfectly united in will and purpose. In fact, when we get to John chapter 17, Jesus is going to be praying for his disciples. And he's going to pray over you and me and say, Lord, I pray that they would achieve the same level of unity that we share. That's why something like Thrive Cape Cod is such a big deal, in my opinion. John 17 unity, churches in a region coming together and say, we believe in a really big kingdom and we want to see God at work in this place. Jesus prayed for that. You know, When I think about this passage, what blows my mind, okay? Jesus is about to head to the cross. It's about to be a really dark night for his disciples, and he waxes theological on them. You're like, why does he go there? Why does he talk to them about the Trinity? I mean, Philip is scratching his head. Thomas is scratching his head. We're scratching our head. Why the Trinity? I want to say this about the Trinity. The Trinity is deeply inviting. Uh, Sky Jethani, when he talks about the Trinity, he says that it gets right to the heart of the Christian vision of God, that we believe that if you peel back the layers of time and space, and if you peel back long before the creation of the world, and if that you could look back in time to that point when there was nothing but God, he asks the question, what would you see? And the answer, he says, is love. That's why the Apostle John says God is love. And when you think about love, love requires two to tango. There's a a lover and a beloved. And so God has eternally existed in this incredible relationship. In fact, This means then that the foundation of the universe is not matter or laws or energy or even will, but it's relationship. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Why do we need to focus our faith upon Jesus? Well, here's the truth. You can't have a relationship with God without having a relationship with the Son. Why? Because you can't tear God apart. The Son is the way. If you want to have a home with God in heaven, you have to believe in Jesus, the Son. And it's because Jesus shares this unique, exclusive relationship with the owner. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have looked into your word, as we've looked at Jesus, we confess, we acknowledge that this life has many problems, many troubles. Uh, we, We have all been through moments where it has gone from level one to level five. and, And I confess, and I'm sure I am confessing on behalf of everyone here, 
We didn't know what to do with those problems. We didn't know where to go. But you show us in your word this morning in John 14 that trust is at the center of it all. Trust is everything. Trust is built through relationship. And the foundation of our relationship with you is through the Son, Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And incredibly, Lord, as we look at what Jesus came to do, Jesus came to invite us in to the relationship of love and joy and delight that you have eternally shared as the Trinitarian God. He's inviting us into the party. I pray, Lord, for those here that maybe they haven't taken that step of faith yet, that they would cling to you right now. Scripture says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Would they reach out to you in faith right now, Lord? Would we, Lord, continue in that relationship of trust with you this week? In your name we pray.